electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, it may be the rarest commodity of them all. Not gold, not diamonds, a house. And a top home builder may have just shown what's coming next for the market. There's a thousand pound piano hanging over Wall Street. It's called NVIDIA. Can it actually beat sky high expectations? Priced out of a new car? Well, it may not just be interest rates, supply or demand to blame. We'll tell you what one is saying it is. Maui's wildfire toll getting a shocking new estimates. We're going to go live to the island on what residents and businesses now need most to recover. Beat at his own game. Carl Icahn's investment firm tumbling to levels not seen in nearly 20 years. And past the Grey Poupon, Rolls-Royce rewriting the very definition of a custom car and its super luxe rivals may be right behind it. That and much more coming up, so belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. All of you watching on the Mountain Time Zone from which I woke up. I am Brian Sullivan. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, the big red flags from retail. Over just a matter of hours, the warnings have come fast and furious from across the industry. Here's your rapid retail rundown. Nike setting its longest stock losing streak ever. Nine straight down sessions fueled by concerns over China's recovery and a weakening American consumer. Nike far from alone. Both Macy's in-store and digital sales down and saying they expect cautious shoppers through the end of the year. Something else to watch? More of Macy's customers are late on their credit card payments. Cosmetics company Cody disappointing investors with their outlook. Lowe's, a relative earnings bright spot, but also seeing lower home spending on improvement projects. But the biggest shock coming from Dick's Sporting Goods. They reported a huge earnings miss. And get this, Dick's putting a lot of the blame on theft, calling it, quote, an increasingly serious issue. Remember, Target said the same thing recently. And if you think those CEOs are alone or exaggerating, listen to what the Macy's CEO told us earlier. To answer your question, the bulk of that is the change in organized theft and just the organized uh, function of you've got elements that are coming into stores and they're stripping them of big categories and they're doing it in bulk. So you're getting these big clots of shortage that's happening in certain areas of the country. And you're seeing that really across most of retail. So to be clear, there's still some good news out there. But what we just told you is not really a pretty picture, right? You got more theft, credit card delinquencies, and all at the same time that many student loan repayments on millions of borrowers are going to kick back in. Some serious headwinds and maybe warning signs. And it begs the question, is the mighty American consumer about to crack or will they power on and keep spending? Let's get to our opening panel, Jerry Storch. CEO of Storch Advisors, former CEO of Saks and Toys R Us, also joined by Dana Telsey, CEO and Chief Research Officer at Telsey Advisory Group, perhaps the top retail analyst on Wall Street. 
Dana and Jerry, good to see you both. Jerry, I, I talk to people about this, and you know what I get? I'll tell you what people say. The, the CEOs are exaggerating, they're lying, theft is not this big of a deal, and by the way, even if it is, who cares? They're insured. I hear that all the time. Look, two things can be true at one time. So it's absolutely true that theft is rising and that organized retail crime is highly behind it and that the ability to fence the goods on the internet is another drive for what we're seeing there. It's also true though, the consumer is stretched. Uh, many retailers have lost control of their inventory from pandemic days until now. Part of the problem is a lot of them aren't even sure what they actually own anymore, given the fact that they were over inventory, they're trying to get out of some of the goods, they're buying new things, selling these. It's going crazy out there in terms of inventory management. I've never seen out of stocks at such a high level in so many fine retailers. And some of that says the data integrity is off, which can sometimes look like theft. So there's a lot going on right now in the retail world. To summarize what's going on with sales, though, it's that the consumer is stretched by a variety of factors. They're not buying things. They still are buying experiences. They haven't been buying things for a very long time. And retailers sell things. So we shouldn't be surprised when their sales fall short. Dana, is theft really this big of a problem? It is a problem, and we've been hearing it from a ton of retailers, whether it's Ulta, who's beginning to put a lot of their fragrances behind lock and key. You go into the Target stores and you can see the security tags. It is something certainly to be mindful of because if the consumer doesn't feel safe shopping in the store and sales associates are being careful in order not to get in front of any bad crimes, you have to be careful and mindful. And we are seeing the expense item of security go up. Yeah. It's a retailer problem, a landlord problem, and it's a local problem, too. Yeah, it is. Dana, I'm going to go back to you because I want to follow up on that. Again, what we hear, and you'll, you can see it on the Internet, people say, well, you know what? It, it's, they're insured. It's not that big of a deal. But go into some of the second and deriv third derivative outcomes. I think you referenced a few of them. You've got employees that don't want to come to work because maybe they're scared. People don't want to go into the store because they're, maybe they're scared. Insurance rates, yeah, you're insured. Those rates are going to go up. And I've got to imagine that if you're a retailer and, and you're getting ripped off, you're going to raise other prices because you have to compensate for the loss. This, there are a lot of other angles here that don't, I don't think, get the attention they deserve. Well, when you think about the gross margin that a lot of these retailers are delivering, they're still seeing some of their higher average unit retail selling prices moving up a bit. The offset is definitely coming from lower freight expenses. But with this security issues being real and everyone trying to figure out how do we manage with manage our expenses, inventories are coming clean for a reason. They're coming clean because of the supply chain headwinds last year. But we need to have the safe environment in order to drive traffic. At the end of the day, these are omni-channel retailers. You need both the store and digital to work. The numbers, Jerry, that I'm seeing, I mean, Target said a billion. The National Retail Federation, I think, said 94 billion stolen estimated this year. And then you do the math, you think, okay, just divide that by, say, 50 bucks an item. You're talking about tens of millions of things being stolen. This has got to be an institutional issue. This is, yes, we see the videos of teenagers coming in and taking stuff or whatever, but there, there's got to be a larger issue going on behind the scenes. I just can't imagine those numbers are accomplished by a couple of people with a shopping cart. No, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, most of this theft is not sort of local theft. This isn't, uh, you know, someone stealing a loaf of bread because they're hungry. Uh, this is organized retail crime. 
It's been going on, by the way, for decades, but it's been been happening at an accelerating rate, largely because you can fence the goods. We alluded to this earlier. It's because it's it, you know organized regional crime isn't very good if you just steal stuff and can't turn it into cash. They don't want the goods. They want the money. And the way to get the money is to take these products. There's zillions of these people who then who then uh, you know sort of you know take the products from the from the organized crime rings and the intermediaries put them up on the internet in various marketplaces, both ones you've heard of yeah. as well as recently B two B marketplaces, and, and get cash for the goods. That's and what's and going. Jerry, you know, okay, Jerry. Here's the, I guess maybe this is a dumb question, but. We're just, we had the video when you were talking to people in a Nordstrom, I think it was in L.A., and they all kind of ran out together. My guess is, to your point, they're going to go sell it to somebody else. They'll get paid, you know, cents on the dollar. Somebody will take that. It doesn't seem like it should be so hard for law enforcement to just track these goods with all the modern technology and everything else, figure out who they're selling it to. You know what I mean? Don't go after the individuals. Go after the kingpins of the ones that are organizing all this and the ones that are putting it online or selling it to swap meets or whatever en masse. Well, they're trying, and that's that's obviously what the retailers are asking for more of. And uh, you see it see it uh, you know every month where the police do break up a ringer, they do tear into a warehouse and find all these goods that were stolen from somewhere. And meanwhile, the the, the one of the biggest issues is that intermediary who's buying from the crooks. They'll claim, oh, I thought they were legitimate. And they are, they are in fact, legitimate businesses, the people in the middle. The ones putting it up on the website aren't the thieves. You know, there's a mi- middle layer here that's, that's operating there. Yeah. But they are finding these goods. They're just not finding anywhere near uh, the volume of what's actually taking place. Uh, yeah, Dana and Jerry, we'll leave it there. The estimate's $94 billion this year. Divide that by 50 or or $100 an item, and you could talk about the volume that we're dealing with. Guys, thank you very much. Have a good discussion. All right, thank you. All right, meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The major averages, they all rose slightly. Actually, they didn't. The Dow down, what am I saying, a half a percent. I was on a plane most of the day. S&B down one quarter. NASDAQ up just a bit. Traders obviously waiting anxiously for NVIDIA's results tomorrow night. That could certainly be a catalyst to move the market either way. Now, inside your money, the biggest winner of the day, Hasbro. It rose 7%. The biggest decliner, clothing retailer VF Corp, down nearly 7%. All right, up next here on Last Call, that hype for NVIDIA reaching a fever pitch. Can the astronomical expectations really be met? A top tech investor will weigh in. Plus, but I'm not dead yet. Meta's new effort to breathe life back into threads. Stick around. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. 
Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, UPS workers in the Teamsters Union just ratified their new $30 billion five-year deal. The deal includes massive pay bumps. Drivers will now make an average of $170,000 per year. Plus, they'll get improvements to work rules and work schedules, among other things. Congrats to them. And almost certainly the biggest market story tomorrow and then probably Thursday and maybe even Friday, that is NVIDIA. NVIDIA reporting its earnings after the bell. The stock trading at all-time highs this morning did close the day out in the red. Obviously, it's NVIDIA. It's going to be volatile. Now, analyst estimates could not be higher with hopes of blockbuster results. And it may be the biggest test yet for the artificial intelligence boom. But has NVIDIA gone too far too fast? For more, let's bring in co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures, Matt Higgins, who also, by the way, holds a long position in NVIDIA. Matt, I feel like it's you and everybody else. And to be fair, that's what worries me. You know, when, when I'm in my Uber going somewhere, and again, the Uber driver is asking me about NVIDIA like they asked me about Dell 20 years ago or Amazon, whenever it was, I'm color me a little bit nervous. No, that's fair. Although I will say this is not pets.com. This is not 1998. I think a lot of that trepidation comes that it feels a little frothy and people are conflating AI boom with other buzzwords like crypto. This is not it. Obviously, uh, NVIDIA has been on an epic run. But if you look at what AI is going to contribute to the GDP by 2030, you're talking about 15 percent. This is a massive fundamental change throughout the world. And NVIDIA is in the driving seat now. They're trading at 50 times uh, forward earnings, which is frothy. But you know what? Apple is trading at 30 times. And I would argue that Apple is more overvalued than NVIDIA. I said it. So you, you brought up the forward price to earnings ratio. And I was looking at other metrics ahead of this price to sales, price to total enterprise value, price to cash flow, whatever it may be, any metric you want. And they're not only at all time highs, they're almost double or triple in some cases, what they were a year ago. And so nobody's doubting NVIDIA's greatness or even its dominance in this platform. It might just be more of the valuation is getting, it seems a little nosebleedy, but no. Yeah, but there was an intervening event, right? They went into the last quarter with expectations around, you know, six and a half. They announced, you know, seven, two, and they guided to $11 billion, right? Biggest uptick in the history of mankind. So it's not as if this is sort of out of nowhere. And to be honest, it is justified. So now that doesn't mean you play the catalyst. Let's put our trader hat on. It doesn't mean you expect that there's going to be a massive bump tomorrow, even if there's a beat and a raise, because the market's already pricing in a 10% move. So you have to be careful. But this is a stock I think, personally, you want to own for the long term. You want to accumulate over time, regardless of whether you play the earnings event. That ship may have passed. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Well, yeah, because to your point, okay, the the estimate the company provided for sales is right around 11.1 billion, but aha, the median Wall Street estimate for sales is 12.6 billion. I'm not sure I can remember a gap between what the company says they're going to do and what Wall Street thinks they're going to do. They're a billion and a half dollars above the company, which means they're probably more bullish than that, which means if they don't come in probably at 13, you could honestly see the stock selling off. 
Yeah, that's the danger, right? I think a lot of it depends on where it closes tomorrow. It closed the day today at, uh, at 4.56. It touched the high at 4.81. Consensus uh, targets are around 5.30. To me, this is what investors should look for tomorrow. Supply chain issues, right? That's number one. We already know there's been supply chain issues with medium demand. Number two, are we double counting? Are people stockpiling? Like Elon Musk said he'd buy every NVIDIA chip he could possibly find. So that's a big issue. Yeah. And then, of course, China, right? China stockpiled $5 billion. Nonetheless, I think NVIDIA is a stock you want to own for the long term and not worry so much about buying the cap. Quick bottom line, what I'm hearing from you, Matt, without say it without saying it, is that if it does fall tomorrow on those numbers, you might be a buyer. You might add more. You would have been happy if you bought it at 405 last week. Okay. Matt Higgins, love it. Long and strong, sticking with it. Could be a volatile night tomorrow, Matt. Thank you very much. All right. Thank Next you. up, let's get rolling on Threads. That is the meta competitor to X, formerly known, of course, as Twitter. And finally, something users have been asking about is happening. Threads will roll out a web-based version of the program. Now, it's only been so far available on your phone, which to heavy users like me is annoying. The desktop version, the newer one, the first one, will lack some of the same features as the mobile version, but Meta says more functionality is coming soon. So while Meta keeps working out the kinks, there is a, a rather uncomfortable question to ask. Has Threads already missed its shot? to crush Elon Musk's X, despite huge hype and what, 50 million plus signups days after launching? And by the way, many tech experts pronouncing Twitter dead? Time spent on threads has fallen 85%. That is according to data firm SimilarWeb. Let's talk about it. Welcome in Wall Street Journal personal tech columnist and CNBC contributor Joanna Stern. I don't know if you got my, Monty, my bad Monty Python accent and reference going into the break. I'm not dead yet. You do wonder, is it, is, is it too late for threads or can they recover and get some of that lost time back? I love joining you on threads death watch. It's a, it's always a pleasure. Here. It was Twitter death watch a month ago. Now it's threads death. <laughs> I'm going to be back in a few weeks and we're going to be talking about this. I'm going to be back in a few months and we're going to be talking about this. This Mark Zuckerberg seems to be playing the long game with threads even though they rushed it out this summer. And here they are again, rushing out something that's not quite done. This web feature, I've been playing around with it. It doesn't have all the features you'd get on the mobile app. And the mobile app is still missing a lot of features you would get on X or Twitter or whatever we call it these days. So this seems to be, as I'm saying, a long play for Zuckerberg and company. They are looking to here capitalize not only on the people who don't want to necessarily be on Twitter or X, but also capitalize on the people already in the meta ecosystem, already on Instagram, mm. maybe getting a little sick of Facebook. And that, as we all know, is a huge billion plus user base. I, I think you nailed it. Uh, I was thinking about it today and I, I think they don't care. I don't think, honestly, Mark Zuckerberg cares about you or I or some other person with you know big following on X. They want the two billion or whatever Facebook and Instagram users to start adopting this type of a platform. Because as we all know, if you're in the media, Twitter's kind of essential, and you spend 10 years building up a presence, you're not gonna dump that and start from zero, I don't think. Absolutely, absolutely. Though I do come on the show to build my Threads followers, so please everyone do follow me there. What, what is your Threads? I'm at, I'm at Brian Sullivan. I actually have my name on Threads, not Sully CNBC on Twitter, because some other guy has the other name. So you can give us that handle and because we appreciate you coming on. But but what's different about it? It's supposed to be the kinder, gentler Twitter. If it's the same people on it, because people are the 
the problem, right? Joanne, it's not the, the plat, maybe. Absolutely, I've said that for a long time. Social media is just a mirror, a reflection of humanity. All the bad of humanity is going to make its way to social media. I do think that Threads here thinks they have a second chance at some of the things they had done wrong previously on social media. One of those things being the algorithm. And we saw with many years of Facebook and even Instagram around elections and what they were pumping through the algorithm versus what they weren't pumping. So we have heard from from Meta here that they want to be a gentler place, a place where there isn't such conversation about hard news. But of course, they're not going to be able to limit that because it is about the people who are there. But one of the missing features that I hope that it does get soon is a trending topic. Right? It's hard to go to this place and know what people are talking about, be able to find the people talking yeah. about the Taylor Swift tour or whatever. And, and keep it kinder and hopefully gentler, but 85% drop according to SimilarWeb. I'm not a mathematician, Joanna, but that's a big number and that's not good. Joanna Stern, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, All right, still ahead here on Last Call. Some dark days get even darker for one Carl Icahn. We'll tell you why. Plus, what one of the top home builders just revealed about the rather a bizarre state of housing right now. That's up next. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, right, welcome back. Hope you're having a great Tuesday. Let's get to our last call watch list. And there's one big item that we've got our eye on here at CNBC. And that is Icon Enterprises, Carl Icon's investment firm falling yet again today, the sixth drop in seven days, and now not at levels seen in nearly 20 years. To say it's been a tough slog for Icon's company, an understatement. The stock's been hammered in the past couple of months. If you remember back in May, short-selling research from Hindenburg Research claimed that Icon Enterprises has a, quote, Ponzi scheme-like structure. Now, that is an accusation. It's a big accusation. And it's an accusation that Icon has repeatedly denied. Hindenburg, which does hold a short position against the stock, alleged that IEP was paying out dividends that it simply could not afford. After fighting back initially against that report, Icon eventually relented, slashing IEP's dividend in half on August 4th, and then shares tanked again. IEP is now down more than 60% this year. It's kind of an odd twist of fate for the lone wolf of Wall Street. And a New York Times article yesterday saying that Icon was getting his, quote, comeuppance has apparently helped worsen the sell-off. The future of Icon Enterprises and the legacy of the 87-year-old business titan hanging closer and closer in the balance. And it doesn't need to be said, but we will anyway. Carl, Mr. Icon, you are welcome to come on this program anytime. Call in, zoom in, whatever, to talk about all this open invite, of course. All right, now let's turn to real estate because this nearly unprecedented housing market continues to confound. July home sales out today. They fell everywhere but out west, where in the west they actually rose a little bit. The biggest drop was here in the northeast. And the supply of homes for sale coming in at about 1.1 million, that is the lowest number of homes on the market since 1999. 
And we don't need to tell you, but I don't know if you just landed from Mars. Interest rates are also soaring. They're now at their highest level in over 20 years. The current 30-year mortgage rate, about 7.5%, but 90-plus percent of homeowners are locked into far lower rates, with some under 4%, which means if you want to sell, you're probably going to have to buy a different home, and you're going to have to give up that nice mortgage that you have at, what, 3.25%, which is why so few people are putting their homes on the market. But here's kind of the odd thing. There is growing demand for new homes, newly built houses. Home builder Toll Brothers releasing their strong earnings tonight, saying that home contracts this quarter up 77% over last year. So what exactly is going on here? Joining us now is Kobesi Letters, Editor-in-Chief Adam Kobesi, doing some great work. Uh, I've stolen, I've ripped off some of your stuff uh, for my RBI, Adam, so I appreciate you coming on the program. Uh, Absolutely. We, Thanks for having me. Sure. We know how bad the situation is. I guess the question I would ask you, and I know it's going to be a guesstimate, is how long does this state of real estate last? To me, that's the bigger question. Right. And as you kind of alluded to, this all really trickles back to interest rates. You've had the Fed funds rate rise at one of the fastest paces in history, um, which has basically led to mortgage rates nearly tripling in a matter of two to three years. And now you have the situation where the only thing to buy is new construction. For the first time since 05, the, the median sales price of a new home is actually about to drop below the median sales price of an existing home. Um, and this is also like a, a big factor of markets kind of beginning to price in a prolonged higher for longer uh, Fed policy. If you look at futures, we went from having three to four rate cuts priced in 2023 to having none at all. And now rate cuts as of today are actually not projected to start until July of or June, sorry, of 2024. So as long as the Fed's fund rate stays as high as it, it is, it's hard to see a situation for, for the housing market supply situation to alleviate, particularly as we're kind of in a weird situation now where ironically, now we need lower rates for lower housing prices, which is something we haven't really just, ever seen before. That, that's why I said it's bonkers. And what you just said earlier was is just as equally bonkers that it, it, it's very close where the price of a newly built home will be, the median price nationwide will be less than the median price of a, quote, used, you know, pre previously lived in house. Exactly. That's nuts. And, and, because home builders, yeah. they, they have, they can manipulate things, right? They can maybe shrink the house a little bit, use cheaper materials. They've got the ability. If somebody during the pandemic bought a house with cheap or almost free money, prices soared, they're locked in. Unless they're like, you know, a billionaire, they're not going to be able to sell and lose money on that home. Exactly. And what, what you have to also take into account is with with the prolonged period of low rates, historically low rates, a lot of these houses were actually bought by investors. So that took a lot more of the supply off the market. And now you see, I mean, that's exactly why new home housing starts are, are, are strong right now. There's really no other option. I mean, um, the 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 new new construction is what you're seeing on the market. Existing homes are not selling because people are over 90 percent of current mortgages are below five percent. Twenty six percent are below three percent. And no one wants to give up those rates to take a rate that's now seven point five percent or higher in some states, eight um, percent and, and sell their house. So it's it's really going to take the Fed to start cutting the Fed funds rate. And that probably doesn't happen until mid-24 before you see more, more supply coming to the housing market. Even a little bit of demand is keeping housing prices up right now. I said this in 2009 when everything collapsed. I wonder when some genius 
We'll be able to create a mobile mortgage, a mortgage you can take with you from one house to the next. Probably not. It's tied to the land fee. Simple. I get it. That said, Adam, do you see this being a 2008 to 2010 or 11 like situation? Absolutely not. I mean, I think we're in a very different situation. Um, there have been increasing worries of some sort of a credit event, particularly as China's, you know, starting to cut rates now and there's different situations happening with central banks around the world. But this isn't an 08 type situation. I think what we will see is once the Fed starts cutting rates in 24, we'll see a slight correction in housing prices, maybe from 10 to 20 percent, maybe even 30 percent. And keep in mind, affordability has actually become, I mean, according to, to, to data, the affordability affordability index is now at its all-time lowest point. Even if yeah. prices came down 30 percent, we'd still be in a less affordable point than uh, pre-pandemic. Yeah. So, so it's a, I think we are due for a correction, but I don't think it's an 08-style crash that's coming. Right, well, that, that's the good news. But Adam Kobesi, to your point, something has to give. Prices up here, when rates are here, they can't be the same when rates go up. We'll see. Adam, appreciate it. All Thanks right. for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, still ahead. Do you think your commute is bad? Wait till you hear America's worst areas. We named the top five city and metro areas to drive in, and I guarantee a number one is not one you might think it is. All right, plus, one reason new car prices have gone so high that has nothing to do with supply or demand. All right, welcome back. Search and rescue efforts are still underway in Lahaina, Maui, following this month's catastrophic wildfires. But Hawaii's Governor Josh Green wants everyone to understand that the state and parts of Maui are still open for business, and he is even encouraging travel. When you come, you will support our local economy and help speed the recovery of the people that are suffering right now. Western parts of the island that have been most impacted by the fire, of course, will remain closed. But tourism is the lifeblood of Hawaii's economy. It needs people to go there. Today, rating agencies Moody's estimated the economic loss of the wildfires could be as high as $6 billion. And of course, the human loss has no, it's priceless. Joining us now from Maui is founder and CEO of Operation Hope, and that is John Hope Bryant with local Maui businessman and owner of Maui Cyclery Bike Store and Go Cycling Maui Tours, Donnie Arnott. Uh, John, um, uh, good to have you on. Obviously, wish we was under completely different circumstances. You're there. We know the Lahaina area is off limits. We're still looking for people. It's horrid. What about the rest of the island? You're talking to people like Donnie. Yeah, so it's really important. And first of all, Brian, thank you and everybody at CNBC for doing this. Uh, It's really important for everybody to understand that while folks in Hollywood, some actors, and it it said stay away from Maui, I think they were wrong, with all due respect. They should have, they were emotional. They care. They should have said stay away from West Maui. Please come to the rest of Maui because 80% of this economy is tourism based. And uh, I'm in Lahaina as an example. And everything's just fine here. Is completely uh, open for business. I'm I'm unfortunately, Brian, in a ballroom that's designed for conferences and it's completely empty. I'm broadcasting from a ballroom in in Wailea. So you can go to Paia, you can go to Haiku, you can go to Kahului, you can go to Hana, you can go to to, to Kihei. Uh, You just can't go. You can go to Kanapali, which is on the other side of Lahaina. Lahaina. God bless those who are experiencing pain in Lahaina. We don't want a double pain, Brian. 
where you now you, you, you know, you've got a physical loss, you've got a spiritual loss, you have an emotional loss. You also have a financial disaster because you've been laid off from your job because, well, there's nobody here and the planes are coming over empty. And Donnie, yeah. who owns this bike shop, he told me it went from completely packed to the day after, Brian, a little lower, the day after the fires, to dead. Just absolutely COVID-like dead. Nobody anywhere. D Donnie, is that welcome, by the way. And, and again, our thoughts to everybody out there. Okay, beautiful island, beautiful people. Is that the state of it? I mean, while they do their work in Lahaina, the reality is that, that tourists should feel okay, even emotionally going. It's okay to, to visit other parts of the island. Yes. Yeah, it's fine. Um, it was about a week after, I guess, the, the fires that I really noticed the drop in tourism. I mean, just this little town is pretty much tourism driven and it's pretty empty right now. Like all the shops, restaurants, galleries, my bike shop, pretty void of people, you know, and, and generally it's pretty hopping little town most of the year round. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely noticed it. And then since then, it's really even gotten slower. So. We could use some people to come back. You know, I, I, my business is dependent on on tourism and locals, but uh, I, need, others, I, I need both. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, listen, for, for those of us, you know, that are tourists that are off island and, you know, we, we to, to John's point, we hear people say, don't come. You're, you're going to take resources that are needed for the first responders. You're one person. We heard your views, Donnie. If you talk to others locals, local business owners, do they feel the same way? Or would a, a family visiting, would they unfairly take hotel rooms or, or whatever it may be that is needed by the first responders and search and rescue? No, I think uh, those guys are pretty well taken care of. There's, I mean, it's been a lot of outreach from a lot of people taking care of the, the, the volunteers, the firefighters, all the people that are, come, that are part of that Lahaina situation are pretty well taken care of, which is great to see. But yeah, there's there's plenty of rooms. Uh, there's a little hotel right here in this town, and it's pretty much vacant right now. Uh, the Hana Highway, which is a pretty busy tourist destination, I was out there on my bike the other day, and maybe three cars passed me in a, in an hour. You know, so it's definitely noticeable. No visitors here, but you know, I haven't I haven't heard anything from any of the other businesses or friends yeah. like trying to discourage people. Everybody's trying to encourage people to come here. Yeah, and, and John, you referenced it's kind of maybe, you know, people have good hearts and I think they have good intentions, yeah. but sometimes they, they miss the point because they're trying to do something when other people are saying, no, no, don't do that. You're sending the wrong message. You, you gave us a little color, talk about this ballroom that you're in that's empty. What mm -hmm. else have you seen? Kind of give us a little bit of window into the part of Maui you're in. Uh, the hotels have already started laying off people. This is the wealthiest part of uh, Maui. So it's only been a couple weeks. They're laying off locals, by the way. So you have the indigenous people, Hawaiians, Polynesians, people whom this is, the, this is their heart. And Lahaina was the heart of the heart. So they live there, maybe, but they work here or they live in Kihei and work there. But now you have a place where your spiritual, spiritual place is dead and uh, in, in trying to figure out this way forward. And now the, 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 the hotels, the restaurants are empty. They're saying, we can't help you either. And this is not COVID where you get stimulus. So we need to support the business. 80%, 90% of this economy is tourism. Yeah. We need people to don't cancel your Christmas. Don't cancel your, 
your your upcoming holidays. Come here. Just avoid West Maui, specifically Lahaina. You can still go to Kapalua, Kanapali, on the other side of Lahaina. Also, yeah. I want to commend Brian. Before the president, God bless the president coming here yesterday. Before he came here, the FEMA administrator, the SBA administrator, uh, Guzman, showed up here quietly about a week or so ago. I was with them. And they were mapping out the long-term response. After you get through what's going on here with the Red Cross and all this essential work, we've got to do the stuff that your viewers can help with. Rebuild the economy. Rebuild the businesses here. Don't come back. Come back better. And we've created a, a coalition of the willing with the SBA and others to help. But this is something your viewers can do to help. In addition to coming here as tourists, is to basically lend their expertise. I I like the message, John, because they're going to need the money, the tax revenue, to help people recover and rebuild. They can't do that without the tourism. Donnie Arnault, Maui Cyclery, please visit. Go go see Donnie. Donnie, thank you. John Hope Bryant, we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. All right, up next, one of the hidden reasons that new car prices stay so high that has nothing to do with supply or demand. Stick around. All right, I'm back, and so is your daily RBI. And this one we found really random but interesting. Now, given the long commutes many of us, many of you may have, 24-7 Wall Street put together a list of the top 25 worst cities and metro areas to drive in. Keep in mind, these are urban commuting regions, not just one single city. They made their list by looking at four things. Average traffic delays, deadly crashes per every 100,000 people, share of those crashes caused by the weather or road designs, and the share of the wrecks involving alcohol as a factor. The results, pretty surprising on a few levels, especially for some big cities that did not make the top five or ten. Places like Chicago, Detroit, and Milwaukee with lots of congested and often older roads, they were not near the top of the list. But these cities and regions are, and we're going to count you down five to one. All right, here we go. According to 24-7 Wall Street, the fifth worst, I thought this would be number one, is right here. New York to Newark, New Jersey, super high on traffic delays. Yeah, no kidding, but actually lower on bad accidents, thankfully. Fourth worst, the Houston's to the Houston to the Woodlands Corridor, which had actually a quite high fatal accident ratio. Third worst, the San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley area. Boston and Cambridge, Mass came in second worst because like New York, they've got a long number of traffic delays. I heard that the tunnel to Logan is out for a couple of months. My goodness. But the single worst place to drive in America is Fairbanks, Alaska. 24-7 Wall Street says the Alaska city, of course, does not have a lot of traffic delays. We've got a moose walking across the intersection. But it does have a high number of bad wrecks and a high percentage of those that involve weather, road conditions, and yes, alcohol. It can get cold and dark way up there in Fairbanks. Certainly not the kind of list that you want to be on top of. Random, but interesting. And hey, if you're up there in Alaska, be careful. All right. Meantime, if you're in the market for a new car, you know how expensive they've got. And many people who borrowed money to buy a car the last couple of years are now starting to hurt a bit. We know that because the rate of delinquent car loans is rising up from 3% two years ago to more than 5% now. And the average payment for a new car loan, more than $700. The average used car payment, not much better, at $569. And of course, used car loans tend to have higher interest rates than new car loans. 
According to Cox Automotive, the typical new vehicle loan interest rate now over 9% with many used car loans in the double digits. And of course, if you're waiting for prices to come down, you think they, they have to. Well, maybe they don't. Maybe you're going to have to keep waiting. The Wall Street Journal argues that slower demand and big losses on most electric cars and trucks, not named Tesla, may be driving up the price of gasoline cars. It's an op-ed, and the journal's editorial board says, quote, traditional automakers will have to raise prices on gas-powered cars to compensate for their EV losses. In other words, lose money on, say, a Mach-E or an electric Chevy, but then you got to try to make it up with higher margins on F-150s or Silverados. At what point will we finally start to see some relief in car prices? Joining us now with additional insight is executive editor of autotrader.com, Brian Moody. Brian, it's just an op-ed, and it's the Wall Street Journal. Right. So I get how some people are going to react. But it seems logical. If you're losing twenty to 30000 bucks on every EV you sell, you've got to make the money up elsewhere. True or false? Yes, that's true. But also listen to what Ford said recently, because they're pumping the brakes on their EV program. They're going to invest more in hybrids. And I think that makes sense right now because hybrids kind of meet people where they are. Um, they get great gas mileage. I don't know why it's not part of the conversation, what it looks like if we get 100 miles to a gallon in 20 years from now. We don't seem to be talking about that. But some automakers well, I, yeah, see that as maybe a way forward. I don't know if you follow my Twitter account, but I, I take a lot of heat because I've been because I've been saying that because number one, good. I, I, well, I've been saying it for a while now. And people say you're anti-EV. I I've said right. it. I'm pro Detroit. I'm pro job. I'm being Detroit this weekend. I'm pro jobs, right. and and I commend Ford for that because it. And I can, I'll make a hot take right now, Brian, and you can agree or disagree with yeah. me. I think yeah. Ford and GM, despite everything they're saying, I think a lot of it is political pressure. There's a lot of tax money that's coming at totally. it as well. I think they will scale back on their EV plans over the next few years, not grow them. Yes, I agree. And if you look at Toyota and Ford, for example, what are they doing? They're doing something very smart, giving consumers choice. You want an electric pickup? They got that. You want a, a gas-powered pickup? They got that. You want a diesel power pickup? They got that. So they want to give customers what they want. That's the smart move, not to make decisions based only on ideology. But that stinks, though, because, like, if you're some guy that wants, needs a new F-150 because maybe you require the truck for your job, you actually mm -hmm. use it for your landscaping business or whatever, you're not going to – I'm not picking on Ford. It could be a Silverado. It could be whatever. You're a sure. Ram 1500. You're going you're gonna to pay more, a lot more for that truck than just two or three years ago. And it seems very clear you're doing that because you're partially subsidizing some wealthier person who wants to buy the electric right. car. Right. And also, one of the things that uh, people don't understand is that when people ask, what's the, what's the path forward for electric cars? It's pretty simple. Make it compelling. Make an electric vehicle so good on price, on performance, on range, on value, on depreciation. Make it so amazing, I can't help but buy one. That's the way it works in this country, and that's how it works best for consumers. Quickly, what's the resale like, uh, asking for a friend, what's the resale like <laughs> on an EV? Not, not, not next year. Ten year right. If you have a 10-year-old electric car, what's the resale like? Uh, Strong? Yeah, not, not great. But if it's eight years old, it's five years old, pretty good. Once it gets out of warranty, people are worried that the cost of the batteries is going to be prohibitive and they're right to worry about that. Yep. The, the warranties are long. 
So don't worry about buying a new one. It's eight years, 100,000 miles at least. So the new car warranty is long. How it looks second or third owner, I don't know. Yep, I talked to a dealer who said they won't take them as trade-ins because they don't know the quality of the battery. They know the quality of an engine. They can, they can figure that yes. out. They can't figure out the battery, and they worry it has zero value if the battery kicks out. Brian Moody will get you back on. Yes. Rational take. Brian, thank you. All right, thank coming you. up, speaking of cars, oh, look at that. Rolls-Royce just re-upped again the battle of the supercar. Robert Frank is going to show it to you coming up. All right, welcome back. If you're not, you know, thinking about buying a Rolls Royce, you know, winning the Powerball, you're going to want to listen to this. While the company has reported flat production, profits for the luxury automaker at record highs. What is behind the surge? Well, one reason is the personalization of cars. Robert Frank, back with another awesome story, because I'm guessing, Robert, the idea is here. If I'm buying a Rolls Royce, I want one that is the only one like it in the world. Absolutely. And they've done that now with every single car. It used to just be sort of a few that are like this. Now they have a whole separate factory. The Rolls-Royce CEO telling me that production will be flat this year at about 6,000 cars, but profits, as you mentioned, likely hit an all-time record. And that reason is customization. Customers choose their own paint color, seat fabrics, dashboard wood, even all the ceilings lights. The average sale price of a Rolls-Royce now about $500,000. But customization can more than double that price. Now for a select few, Rolls-Royce will even build your own one-of-a-kind car from the ground up. Their latest so-called coach build was unveiled over the weekend at Pebble Beach. It's called La Rose Noir. And the price tag? over $30 million just for this one car. The wood parquet and the dash took two years to carve and install from 1,600 pieces of black sycamore. It's even got a custom champagne chest with two custom bottles and special flutes. Don't bother trying to buy one. You have to be specially invited by the company. Coach Build is what I would call the pinnacle of customizing. You as a client, you tell us your dream about what the car should be and that takes then far over four years and you as a client, you are constantly with us. You are signing every single engineering step off because you have commissioned the car and we are building it in your own personality. And Brian, you were just talking about EVs. Rolls-Royce just launched its fully electric Rolls-Royce called the Spectre. And it is sold out until 2025. It's $420,000 is starting price, Brian. They may be the one EV maker that is not cutting prices and has a very long waiting list. We'll see. Hey, Robert, very quickly, we talked about the Steve McQueen premium. It was a 1967 Honda. Just went on bringatrailer.com. Killed it. Made a ton of money. Yeah, and that McQueen Ferrari we showed you sold for $5 million. And the McQueen Premium is nuts. The watch he wore in Le Mans would sell for about $2 million today. He is the king of cool and the prince of premiums when it comes to cars. There you go. Robert, thank you. Folks, thank you. We will see you tomorrow night. Appreciate you tuning in. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.